The Curmudgeon Rock Report. Curmudgeon rhymes with bludgeon. Rock gods do it right. So do rock nerds. We're here for The Rock. 1965, 2021, doesn't matter. Crude, rude, yet somehow sophisticated. Welcome. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of our favorite podcast and soon to be the world's favorite podcast, the Curmudgeon Rock Report. Uh, I am Christopher O'Connor and uh, joining me as always is our co-host, Arturo Andrade. Uh, I'm the heart. He's the brain. Say hi, Art. <laughs> hi there, hi there, Hart. Uh, greetings from South Korea, where uh, spring is in the air, as is a lot of the pollen dust that gives me my allergies. Oh, there, you, there you go. Uh, bronchial asthma, ain't it great? Oh uh, God, yeah, yeah. Like, I, dude, I had to take, like, okay, the allergy uh, here in Korea. When you get pills, the doctor gives them to you in packs. Like little packs, each pack has like two or three little pills, right? And you're supposed to take one pack in the morning, then one in the afternoon, then one in the evening like that. My allergies, it's either my allergies are so bad or Korean allergy medicine is so bad that I need to take three of those packs in one <laughs> sitting in, like, in order for me to feel better. Yeah, I was going to say, which means you're probably like shit in brown blood, right? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it hasn't affected me that far yet, but uh, I'm having a good day with allergies today. It's not so bad today. Well, that's good. Yeah, I actually had a terrible day yesterday because we're now getting to the 80 and humid part of the early spring in, in, in Houston. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I said Houston, you know, like I said, eight, nine months out of the year, uh, gorgeous uh, weather. It'll probably still be gorgeous. I'm getting married next month, and so it should be gorgeous uh, on my wedding. Uh, and that's that. That's one thing uh, I should mention, folks, is that uh, I'm doing my research now for a first dance song. Uh, if you have any suggestions for a really cool, uh, really sort of unconventional first dance song for a wedding, uh, hit us up at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com, or you can hit us up at Twitter at, uh, at curmudgeonpod uh, uh, there as well. Uh, for what it's worth, uh, Sincerely by Harvey and the Moon Glows is in the lead. Oh, uh, nice for that. Uh, so uh, we'll see. At one point, I was thinking about Bruce Springsteen's "I'm on Fire" until it was pointed out to me that there's a line about him cutting a six-inch uh, river or valley in the middle of his skull. So I, probably <laughs> not a good way to start a marriage. Yeah, no. It's like all those people who loved, you know, the that that song by the Police, "Every Breath You Take," not uh, having it played on their weddings, not knowing that it's a stalker song. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, you have to consider, oh, yeah, it's sexy music. It's great to dance to, but you kind of have to listen to the lyrics with a wedding yeah. song. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I can't I can't really do Tupelo Honey, which would be my go-to, because I suggested that to uh, our old college buddy, uh, Stu, yeah. and his wife, Dawn. And, you know, Dawn is cooler than either of us by about 14 miles. And so Dawn took the idea of Tupelo Honey and had her parents walk her down the aisle to Tupelo Honey, oh. which is ridiculously cool. And they also got married on a nature preserve in Princeton, New Jersey. It must, it must have been a long walk because that's a really long song. 
No, no, no. It was just a snippet. Um, it was the beginning of it, not the uh, not the outro, which is you know, I mean, that's my favorite Van Morrison song. I mean, the outro, oh, it, yeah, it just gets it gets extraordinary. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, so uh, on that note, one more thing before we get going here with our usual opener about new albums, uh, have to give a shout out to our uh, new friends from the Record Refresh. And uh, especially Joey. Hello, Joey. I'm sure you may be listening. Uh, we got some feedback. You know, here we are. We're uh, uh, in our sixth episode. We're starting to resemble uh, an outfit that knows what the hell we're doing. Uh, if, you know, as you notice that uh, we're getting sound there. quality. Hey, you know, Arturo's actually using a real mic. Uh, yes, he, finally. He, he's growing. But uh, Joey gave us a compliment that uh, we obviously sound like we're having a blast and having a lot of fun doing what we're doing. So, uh, that's the point here, folks, that we are in a uh, affinity niche. And if we ain't having fun, what wouldn't be doing this? Worth? Yeah. <laughs> what's it worth? So on that note, uh, so as you know, we start these episodes uh, with uh, contemporary album recommendations. But we got to thinking that it really comes from our desire to see rock actually in, in our own imaginations be uh, culturally like millions of people relevant again. And so Arturo, you know, what, yes. what thoughts do you have on that? Yes. We're, this is the last episode in which we're going to call it uh contemporary album recommendations, because that's just too long. Starting next episode, we're going to call this the parallel universe. Now, why are we calling this the parallel universe? Because these are real albums, you know, by contemporary modern rock artists slash bands that otherwise that, that probably won't you won't you'll never hear it on the radio you'll never see it on MTV uh, you you might see it on you might see clips of these uh, or videos of these bands on YouTube because YouTube is basically you know the the you know the new MTV now but basically what we're basically what what the idea is if there were a parallel universe where modern rock radio w- was still a thing uh, these are the albums. And these are the bands that we think should be played on the radio, basically. Yeah, and- yeah. If 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 we ran uh, the radio, uh, these these would be the uh, these would be the songs. And and we got to give a shout out real quick that uh, the rock radio stations in general are dying, but two really good ones are still out there: uh, KEXP in Seattle, yeah, uh, which is all over YouTube because they have uh, artists always come in. Uh, doing performances. But then there's also, uh, from my old stomping grounds in Westchester County, New York, there's WXPK, The Peak, uh, which is this amazing kind of uh, uh, an independent rock station. But they exist in a universe where they, they're still under the impression that Squeeze and Smithereens are the most popular artists uh, on the planet. So, but anyway, uh, if, if we, if, if people still listen to rock and roll and all this, this is the stuff that we would program it with. I mean, that's right. Really the exactly. So, so on that note, on that what, note, what are you, what are you, what are you pulling out of the, uh, the contemporary air this week, dude? Okay. This is a Swedish band called Viagra boys and their album. Well, before I go into their album, it's a Swedish band with a British lead singer. So yes, all their songs are in English. They just released. Oh, yeah. a, they just released a new album this year, but compared to their first album, it's actually kind of a half-assed, underdeveloped mess. 
you know, three of the nine tracks are instrumental segues, you know, always a sign of a lack of good material. Um, even though there are a couple of good songs, but not much more. So as a result, because of this, I'm going to focus on their brilliant debut album from 2018 called Street Worms. Now, how would I describe Viagra Boys? By the way, great name. <laughs> That's number one. Number two, their music, basically, if the butthole surfers took a post-punk approach toward Frank Zappa, i.e. ramp up the social satire parody, ramp up the avant-garde noise, and cut back on the virtuoso musicianship. Uh, Viagra Boys basically take a 21st century approach toward the butthole surfers, is basically what it is. And they do this by expanding on the surfers' uh, patented satirical, lyrical commentaries on macho maleness and redneck white trash culture. And they do that while cutting down on the noise experiments and ramping up the music with like really heavily rhythmic, lean, mean, sinister disco rock. <laughs> bordering, sometimes bordering on funk, sometimes bordering on straight up disco. Um, standout tracks are the single from that album, Sports, which uh, hilariously draws a parallel between the stereotypical male obsession with sports and their obsession with their penises, <laughs> you know, and their, and their testicles, you know, lyrics like beach balls, baseballs, surfboards, wiener dogs. That's an actual lyric. <laughs> yeah. There you go. And, uh, the last, yes, the last track, it's this hilarious instrumental. It's called a uh, amphetarniki amphetarniki has a propulsive, almost techno like groove scronking atonal saxophones and this really weird stop stop and start dynamic going on to it. So yeah, it's it's very post-punkish, but like postmodern post-punk. So uh yeah, if you take Zappa and the butthole surfers, put it put them in the postmodern, post-punk blender with a lot of you know self-conscious humor, you get Viagra Boys. Highly recommended. Well, you know, I well one, I love the name and um uh, Viagra Boys, and uh, yeah, this is this is something that's that's new to me. This is you know Arturo living in the uh, the, the deep end of the crates, uh, and so that's my kind of stuff. Uh, you know, remember uh, one of our main principles is that dumb is not necessarily bad, and so uh, that was a that was a beautiful modern uh, Picasso uh, painting of a dumb lyric. Uh, that, you, uh, that you put out there anyway. So, okay. Thank you as always. And then uh, now uh, for my album uh, and, or for uh, my recommendation this week, this is a, a young uh, British band uh, been around for a little while, but they're, uh, they're called Sunstack Jones, uh, which uh, is a very apropos uh, name uh, for them. Uh, it's one of these things of, uh, with a band called Sunstack Jones, you'd want to say if somebody asked you, so what does this band sound like? <laughs> what, what should be the answer? Oh, Sunstack Jones, you know, it, it, they're, these, this, uh, their stuff is a Sunstack. Now to describe them, uh, let me read uh, a wonderful, and I'm sure that they probably wrote this themselves. And if they didn't, then uh, God bless their publicist at the time. This is uh, when they were uh, uh, for 
they were uh, promoting uh, one of their records from 2018. Uh, this is what they wrote. Uh, Liverpool-based collective Sunstack Jones are something of a preemptive strike on the inevitably dull British summer, bringing forth songs that stand out like slants of light in a dusty old room. Their aim is to make immersive music, transporting you to a lethargic euphoria with (laughs) billowing soundscapes to soothe the soul. Lethargic euphoria. That sounds like a great band name right there. Yeah, exactly. And and the amazing thing is that's actually a pretty good description. Uh, I would have never come up with that myself. But uh, so this tells you that this is a band that has tremendous self-knowledge. Now, uh, since these guys are, uh, they're from Liverpool, they're English. So, you know, obviously, you know, any of these, uh, uh, pop, traditional pop rock bands from Britain, and they're going to be influenced by the Beatles. And these days, they're going to be influenced by Oasis. That's just sort of in the DNA, and especially Oasis with their sort of quirky melodies and uh, um, those uh, lead lines and that sort of uh, cross between, uh, you know, cross between sort of hard 70s rock and 60s psychedelia. Uh, that you sometimes got from Oasis. Uh, Sunstack definitely uh, caught that bug, but it goes even beyond that. They also have a, a tremendous gaze towards California. And, 1670s California. Yeah, 1670s California. They've got the harmonies. They've got the echo, uh, but they also and they also have a really strong sense of that sort of San Fran that San Francisco lilting. Uh, a guitar line thing and the echo and the reverb and the, uh, you, know, the you know, that stuff. And so it's, it's like beautiful pain in, in some respects is, is kind of what it, it reminds me of. And so, uh, so this record, you know, if you love that kind of guitar, which I do, uh, Arturo actually, when we were talking off uh, air before we, uh, started this episode actually uh, invoked uh, the Beechwood Sparks, which may be the first time that any person on the planet has invoked the Beechwood Sparks since about 2001. <laughs> well, hey, they had an album in 2012, the tarnished gold, the tarnished gold is fantastic. Oh, I know. I know they, uh, I'm not saying that they, that they didn't you know keep, keep on trucking, but again, it's just uh, uh, in terms of relevance and people talking about it in public, uh, you probably have to go back to when I was actually writing full time when anybody actually invoked them, but it's actually a good call. So uh, I would say with this album, which is called Golden Repair, uh, so that's their fourth record. Uh, it uh, just came out in October of uh, 2020. It's ten songs. Uh, I would say that the highlights are probably uh, right in near the beginning of the record. How it all went down. Uh, a single, yeah. Yeah, it's it's single, and you can see the YouTube uh, video, which, again, it's a bunch of hippie-looking British guys and aviator shades hanging out in the desert. Uh, <laughs> of course, yeah, yeah with, uh, you know, with, with with magic amps that nobody can see. You know, the amps are an, the amps are an optical illusion. They're a mir- they're a mirage, uh, but uh, it's still it's it's a beautiful little, uh, very clean Orthodox pop song with that uh, little thing echoing uh, g- guitar. Uh, and then there's a really uh, lovely uh, instrumental uh, in there called Should Have Been, uh, about four minutes. But 
really just strong, beautiful, gorgeous California, almost uh, close your eyes and, and, and feel the waves uh, cracking in the, uh, the background. Uh, feel the so, molecules of love. Yes. The molecules of love. Yeah. And so, yeah, uh, you know, I know we have a running joke about the green test, but, uh, I, and I don't, I, I don't smoke pot anymore since, you know, I'm 45 and about to get married to a, although, which is kind of funny, by the way, a, a, an off the cuff observation is our, our neighbors across the street are, are pot dealers. And so I'm always telling, I'm always telling my fiance when she starts having, uh, uh, nausea or, or uh, stomach issues that we I, I can always go across the street and buy some weed. Uh, now I have but, another reason to visit you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, Arturo's getting on a plane and coming to Texas so he can hang up my neighbors. Uh, <laughs> coincidentally, I, I backed into one of their cars coming out of the driveway one time. Oh. I, I mean, the guy was cool. I mean, he he took care of the insurance, all that. And I didn't know later that, you know, that basically that he's, he's the, uh, the, the neighborhood pot dealer. So, uh, that's a great way to end the uh, discussion on Sunstack Jones. They make basically, you want to go across basically, the folks, basically folks, it's Beachwood Sparks meets Oasis and they borrow Quicksilver messenger services, guitars. Yes. Quicksilver, uh, messenger service. Uh, and, uh, one thing of note too, is that remember back in 67, 68, uh, San Francisco and London had, uh, parallel psychedelic underground, uh, yeah. scene going on. And for a while there, London was out San Francisco in San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so this really evokes a lot of that. It's, it's look at it as 50 years of British, rock development and history kind of rolled up into a new generation. And it's not just reverend, it actually stands out on its own. So uh, great record. Uh, check it out. You can go to Bandcamp, actually, sunstackjones.bandcamp.com uh, and uh, stream the, the entire record there. Actually, all four of the records. So uh, God bless Bandcamp. Uh, even though I'm sure nobody can make music off recorded music anymore, it's at least out there. And ain't that a wonderful thing? So Sunstack Jones, Golden Repair, that's uh, that's my recommendation for the week. And Viagra Boys. And Viagra Boys. So, <laughs> Don't forget uh, them. So, Street uh, Worms. That's the name of the album, Street Worms, 2018. Street worms. St- yep, Street Worms. So, and, and that's a classic Arturo move. It's a, it's a contemporary band that has a new album that sucks, and so he goes back into the Wayback Machine to two or three years ago. Because, you know, as we always say, that uh, – Earlier stuff is always better than late stuff, and uh, 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 addicted stuff is always better than sober stuff. I mean, that's that's usually. another rule. Yeah, usually in our world, uh, if Elton John was still on drugs, Elton John would still be good. I mean, you gotta you gotta figure. <laughs> so, uh, that's an aside. So on that note, uh, Arturo, uh, this is part two of our uh, "Got Live If You Want It" uh, trilogy. Yes. And uh, so set us up. Well, the name of this episode is actually Let There Be Rock, ellipses, on film. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, yes. Uh, because of the coronavirus, as we all know, live music has been essentially reduced to bands and artists recording videos of themselves, performing in their homes and or their garages, and posting them on YouTube. Now, if you miss the communal feeling of being at a rock concert, obviously you can't and you shouldn't go to one now. The next best thing or things are listening to live albums and watching concert films. 
Last episode, we gave we each gave five awesome live album recommendations. Today, we're dealing with concert movies, concert films. Some of them professionally, most of them professionally shot. Some of them are extremely well known. Some of them are really freaking obscure. <laughs> and keep in mind, these are not our choices for greatest live albums and concert movies of all time. These are just the ones we love, although we do consider some of them to be among the best of all time. Yes. Uh, and yeah, and that's definitely uh, definitely true. And, and it, it, it kind of works out. Again, uh, so concert films helped make rock and roll. I, I don't think that's an overstatement. No. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, one of the uh, movies we do not cover because we don't necessarily have to is Woodstock. And so yeah, it's overdone. Yeah, think of what Woodstock did and think of how Woodstock was made and think of what Woodstock uh, uh, meant and then capture the film. And, you know, uh, just remember Scorsese worked as a cameraman slash editor on that. So that's kind of how he got his start, uh, ironically enough. But you think about the aesthetic of 50s, 60s uh, rock and roll and even early 70s. And a lot of it is comes from these films from guys like D.A. Pennebaker, Scorsese. Uh, some of the um, some of the the great um, uh, artists, and even in the eighties when Jonathan Demi uh, entered uh, uh, the fray, and so there's a lot of iconography, and the spirit, if not the scope, uh, remains. And so, what we're going to do here is to prove that Arturo is going to focus on newer, uh, uh, newish, <laughs> yeah, newish. Uh, uh, films. Yeah, some of it's newish, whereas I'm going to focus on oldish. Uh, not all of my uh, recommendations are old. Uh, the, the youngest one is from 2009. Uh, but we, we, we kind of did it that way to kind of show that uh, there's a continuum, that there's still a lot of great stuff being documented and a lot of still great use of the medium to sell rock and roll as this sort of uh, live wire act and sort of something that happens in spontaneity and should happen in spontaneity, but also looking at, you know, capturing cultural greatness on film. I mean, that's what it comes down to, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. I mean, and, and, and like, yeah, like you said, it's not just movies themselves, it's the visual medium is what helped propel rock and roll. He did it with Elvis Presley in the 1950s, him being on the Ed Sullivan show. Sure. Um, with the Beatles in the 60s, not just uh, being- On the Ed Sullivan show, yeah. On the Ed and having movies. You know, that yeah, Hard Day's Night, Help, and all that they, stuff. They yeah. all, and and they, they, were, they weren't just movies, they were blockbuster hits. So they yeah. were, you know, so like, so these, these, these early rock stars, they weren't just music stars, they were movie stars as well, especially Elvis when he did nothing but movies. <laughs> like an entire decade. Yeah. 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 So, no, so, yeah, so it's interesting. And so, you know, you, you, you look at these things and so, you know, my list will probably be more familiar to most of you, but it's interesting to revisit some of these things and how they've aged and what they tell us and how we can look at them in a modern prism. So, and if you have, and if you have a really good sound system, you can blast it and pretend you're there. Flashback to 1984. Were you a Michael Jackson person or were you a Prince person? It may surprise some of you that I was a Michael Jackson guy back in the day. Say what you want about all the tawdry tabloid stuff and the legal entanglements, 
but as a performer and R&B musician, Michael was the shit. Arturo disagrees with me. Actually, he disagrees with me vehemently. Prince may have been more prolific than Michael Jackson, but was he actually better? Are you a Prince pundit, or are you a Michael Maven? Hit us up at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com, and tell us how you really feel. Okay. Ten films, ten little reviews, uh, and a penumbra of exciting rock and roll captured on film uh, for all the world to see. Let us start this exercise now. Arturo, uh, what is the first film on your newish uh, list of films? Well, I'm going in chronological order, not in order which is better or which is worse. It's just just chronological order. And I'm starting with a live DVD that was released in 1998 by the iconic British band Oasis. The name of the DVD is There and Then. I'm pretty damn sure you can the whole thing is on YouTube. And uh, it's taken from two shows, uh, November 4th, 1995 at Earl's Court in London and May 28th, 1996 at the Main Road Stadium where Manchester City uh, plays their soccer games. Um, Sorry, football (laughs) In, in, in Manchester, England. And I chose this because this is a snapshot or rather a screenshot if we go by modern parlance. A screenshot in time when Oasis were at the absolute peak of their powers. They were by far the biggest band in the UK and probably Europe and one of the best bands in the world at that time, riding the momentum of their first two all-time classic timeless albums, Definitely Maybe and What's the Story, Morning Glory. What stands out about this particular film is how staggeringly loud these guys were live and how charismatic they were, even when they were just basically standing pat with minimal movement during the whole show. You know, they, they, they just projected an aura of like rock star coolness that at the time you know, we hadn't seen in a long time. What also stands out is how the B-sides to their singles you know, everyone knows their classic singles, Wonderwall, Champagne Supernova, Don't Look Back in Anger, Cigarettes and Alcohol, Live Forever, blah, blah, blah. But what stands out is that how the B-sides to these singles, songs like Acquiesce, The Master Plan, Round Our Way, were every bit as good, if not better, than many of their singles and album tracks. And it's just a reminder of how many great songs were pouring out of Noel Gallagher at the time. And how the biggest mistake this guy made later on was democratizing the songwriting in the band from 2000 onward, resulting in not a single album being anywhere close to this peak period, much less even consistently good. I mean, I understand why he did it. I mean, in interviews, in interviews, he said, he said, I just don't want to be the, the tyrant anymore. I want to give other people a chance. I call bullshit on that. I think the real reason is that Noel Gallagher just ran out of juice. (laughs) I just think he ran out. Um, Some songwriters have it for a certain amount of time, then they lose it. I think Noel just just lost it. And you know what? I don't have as many good songs anymore. Let's have Liam write some songs. And we all know Liam can't write songs for jack shit. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he, <laughs> you know, yeah. The other guys like Jem Archer and Andy Bell, great musicians and all, but no, those guys can't write songs for shit. And they couldn't even back back when they were in Ride. So no, sorry. Uh, yeah, it's basically the same thing that happened to CCR. You know, democracy yeah. kills bands. Yeah. Well, so with, with CCR, it's different. Uh, uh, John Forwardy did not want to give up um, uh, the songwriting control. The other band members made him do it. Yeah, um, exactly. No, yeah, no, yeah. So I mean, yeah, it's a different dynamic. But what ends up happening is, you know, is when the the genius loses control one way or another. That's the end yeah. of that band. So. And in this case, with, with Oasis, it was just Noel Gallagher just ran out of gasoline, <laughs> you know. And he has written some good songs here and there sporadically throughout the last twenty years, but nothing with any nothing with the level of consistency that he had in that mid nineties peak with this band. Not even close, really, you know. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. So, yeah, definitely ninety eight Oasis, like you said, that it's kind of the beginning of the end. But at the same time, they still uh, that was 97, 98. Uh, you couldn't have been more popular in a country than they were. And, you know, like Noel Noel Gallagher could have, uh, recorded the the sound of him taking his shit and it would have been, uh, you know, it would have been a platinum single Yeah, uh, (laughs) at at that point. Um, and for what it's worth by 2000, that's Pretty much standing on the shoulder of giants, and basically that's what it sounded like. <laughs> Might as well. That, that, al- that album is a, a, a standing shower of shit. That album. Yes, 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 it is. I mean, that that's when you knew it was like, okay, yeah, Noel was phoning it in, and you know, Liam, you know, can't get his shit together. But yeah, I, I, like I said, it's um, the concert. Like I remember uh, one of my favorite um, SNL music performances of all time is them. Uh, I think it was actually they did acquiesce and come on feel the noise. It was uh, yeah, it yeah. was summer of uh, 1996, and they just and, were for, and for the record, I actually like Be Here Now. I'm actually one of the few people in the world who actually likes that album. Gallagher was still writing good songs at this point. It was just it was after. I mean, many people mark that as the end of Oasis. I still think that's a kind of an underrated record. Nowhere near. Yeah, I do too. Uh, it's a good the, record. There's great yeah. songs on there. Oh, absolutely. Well, the neatest trick on that record is, uh, uh, do you know what I mean? The uh, the rhythm track is sampled from straight out of Compton. Yeah. Uh, so it's 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 a neat it's a neat trick, but it works. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like you know this reverse sampling uh, ethos, but uh, yeah. such was the uh, brilliance at the time of uh, Noel Gallagher. He st- he, that's when he still had the juice. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely go uh, check out this film. It's uh, it's definitely a document of that uh, special time in, in history where you know Britain just blew up over these yeah. guys. Also, one of one of the Titanic bands of the nineties. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely Titanic. So, what you got next? Next, another Titanic band of the nineties. Um, this is definitely available on YouTube. It should be. Um, this is none other than Rage Against the Machine. The Battle of Soul. Now, this is available on YouTube. It, it was filmed in at the Olympic Park Gymnastics Arena in Seoul, South Korea, during the Asian leg of their 2000 tour for their last studio album, the classic, The Battle of Los Angeles. Now, while there are tons of live rage footage on YouTube, this particular show is incendiary. They're clearly, obviously energized by performing in a country they had never played before. You know, and living in South Korea, I can tell you that 
not too many big bands make the visit over here. And if they do, it's really the stopover gig on the way to the main weekend gigs in Japan. You know, uh, Korean rock audiences really appreciate when Western bands come here and they tend to go nuts whenever they do. Um, Oasis, Nine Inch Nails, Muse, Metallica, they're all among the big name artists who have come here to rapturous receptions. You know, a lot of these, you know, seriously, I mean, I, I've been to a couple of these shows. A lot of them don't speak English, but they know the lyrics to all the songs. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and you can hear a little of the crowd excitement in this film footage of this Rage Against the Machine show. But I can only imagine how it must have been like to be at this show in person. Even so, it's worth watching just to see a vintage Rage Against the Machine performance. They were one of the best, most riveting live bands of the 1990s. They were by far, with gigantic letters, the best rap metal band of all time, influenced all the other rap metal bands, and arguably they were the only good one. <laughs> and they had, and on top of that, they had one of the most perfect discographies in all of rock history with all three albums. And I'm not counting the covers album, Renegades. I'm not counting that. All three of their albums, ranging from utterly brilliant to up there with Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath as some of the best hard rock and metal ever recorded. Um, one of the greatest, one of my 10 all-time favorite, personal favorite bands. And this is just, just shows how awesome this band was. They have several of these, the battle of... Uh, 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 records out there and uh, yeah. recordings out there. The most famous is the Battle of Mexico City, which I'm familiar yeah. with, yeah. Uh, which is another kick-ass show. I mean, the version from Testify on that is just uh, blow away. Uh, I always tell people uh, my the favorite, well, the best live show I've ever seen was in October of 1999 at the Roseland Ballroom. It was Public Enemy opening for Rage Against the Machine. And it was the perfect venue with the perfect acoustics for that band. And they were just on. I mean, this is like Tom Morello um, at his absolute peak. Uh, this is Zach Delarocca at his most confident. And they're just rolling out. And the exciting part about this was this was about a month before, two weeks before the Battle of Los Angeles was actually released. So this is the first time that anybody's actually hearing these songs. And so they get into calm like a bomb and it just blows up like a motherfucker. Um, and uh, just some of the, the stuff was just fantastic. Testify. I remember just uh, being, let's just put it this way. There was so much energy in that show and it was just such a blast off and dynamite stack that by the end of the show, I was exhausted. I was sweating my balls off and I'm exhausted and I'm sitting there covering it. I'm supposed to be there with a, a, a notebook and it was just absolutely intense to the point where I stopped taking notes <laughs> and I was able to write about it competently the next day. The, the only frustrating part was I didn't know the name of any of the damn songs. And so I had to try to find the, the sound guy at the end to see if I could get the, the, uh, the set list uh, 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 and take a picture of the, uh, the, the set list uh, from the notebook uh, or the, the taped uh, set list and was able to, was able to do that. But uh, yeah, uh, basically they were at a point where they could do no wrong. And they were the best live band, uh, hard rock band in the world. So tight and they could just do it. 
and just so good together. And, uh, you know, Rolling Stone called them the mightiest band in rock and roll in a famous cover. And yeah, they were right. Mighty, mighty, yeah. mighty, mighty, mighty. Yeah. So uh, great uh, selection there. Dude. All right. All right. Number three. This is another of um, among my favorite bands. This is the White Stripes under Blackpool Lights is the name of the of the of the show of the movie. I think, I think they released it on DVD. Yeah, under the Blackpool Lights. It's good stuff. Under the Blackpool Lights, right? And this, but but you can also again you can find this on YouTube. And uh, to my knowledge, this is a complete unedited concert taken from the January twenty seventh two thousand four show at the Empress Ballroom in Blackpool, England, the same venue where the Stone Roses recorded a legendary concert film of their own back in 1989. Mm -hmm. Now, like the previous entry, this is another concert document of a band at the very peak of their career. You know, this is the, uh, the, 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 this is a year after they released Elephant, you know, and this is before the underdeveloped mishmash of Get Behind Me Satan and the, the just okay collection of songs that make up Icky Thump, you know, you know, half of Icky Thump were outtakes from previous albums. Um, the grainy, slightly old style quality of the film footage actually matches. I think it's done intentionally. It matches the retro vinyl worshiping analog loving, loving aesthetic of the band. It's also a reminder of how scintillating a live band these two were with the interplay and improvisational aspect between Jack and Meg White, pretty much bordering on telepathic, you know, um, of note is the barn burning, searingly intense version of Sunhouse's death letter and, or death letter blues as it was originally known. Uh, it's a testament to how a band slash artist can, can do a cover so well that they forever make it their own. Kind of like what Hendrix did with all along the watchtower. The White Stripes do that with Death Letter. Um, also of note is that at this point, Meg White was not a bad drummer anymore. Now, one of the big critiques of the White Stripes in their early days was that Meg couldn't keep time or that she was just a shitty drummer. But by 2004, they had recorded four albums, all brilliant, all classic, and they've been touring for more than five years. It's impossible not to get better on your instrument if you've been working that long. So yeah. not only does she keep a workhorse like uh, a very Ringo like steady beat throughout, but she throws a few little semi fancy fills along the way. It's not all, you know, it's not all shit. Right. And this live document is a showcase for, in my opinion, one of the three best and most important rock bands of the noughties and arguably the best. That's it. Yeah, I definitely. And, uh, I got to defend Meg white that, uh, uh, who cares uh, about the timekeeping with a band like the White Stripes? It's all it's all bash out. Basically, we, we saw them in 2001 in a small club in New York. Uh, I wasn't all that familiar with them. And my first take on them was take Led Zeppelin and only do Jimmy Page and John Bonham. And, <laughs> it, it, and it's just boom, 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 boom. And Meg White was just the boom. And it's like, so who cares if she didn't have tasteful hi-hat kind of shit going on? It was just, you know, bang the sticks. I mean, look, I, you know, my friend Maddie Karras used to say that Meg White couldn't keep time if he gave her a watch. And uh, and so my response to that was always, well, maybe if you had a sweep hand, maybe. Uh, but no, good, 
good drummer uh, or underrated uh, drummer. But yeah, uh, that's a good show. I mean, that again, you know, that was at uh, pretty much at the at, at their peak uh, and their height. And you know, Jack White is just a fascinating watch. Um, just seeing like the stuff, you know, all the pedals and the angles and all the kind of weird stuff and the, you know, the, the bouncing around, but also just sort of, uh, how he works to make it all. It's almost like he's, he's his own conductor. I mean, he's kind of a, kind of a strange dude, but he just, it's like, he's experimenting with the, uh, the space as he goes along and figuring out the perfect angles and, and all of that. I saw him at Coachella at you know, the white stripes at Coachella and he was complaining about the audio the entire time. And I'm like, well, dude, your band is not made for a fucking 90,000 uh, person festival. Yeah. Uh, they were like the perfect small club kind of band. I mean, that's and those types of things. And so, yeah, you know, it's just, just interesting stuff. I mean, and, and a lot of these uh, that Arturo is recommending, it's just, it's basically it's single show uh, performances uh, and it really is just kind of documenting things uh, as, as they happen. And so it's about yeah. the energy and uh, the, white, the white stripes is one of the more, they're one of the more uh, mesmerizing energetic bands to see live that I ever have. So. And it's going from one band that's meant to be uh, listened to and viewed in a small venue setting to another band that is meant to be, viewed and listened to in a small venue setting one of my personal favorite bl- bands black rebel motorcycle club and the oh, name of this concert film, the name of this concert film is just live now this dvd was released in 2009 um i don't think you can get it on dvd anymore i don't think you can get it i don't think it's even available on youtube but i'm pretty sure you can download it from a torrent site <laughs> One of those quote unquote illegal ones. That's where I got it. Uh, <laughs> it. It's just called Black Rebel Motorcycle Club Live. And the film chronicles BRMC's 2007 tour in support of their criminally underrated album, Baby 81. And it takes footage from three shows one in Berlin, one in Glasgow, and one in Dublin. Now, more than me talking about how great a concert film this is, this is in effect more of a chance for me to get on my soapbox and rhapsodize about who I feel is one of the most underappreciated and undervalued bands in all of rock, perhaps in all of rock history. When their self-titled debut came out in 2001, snooty critics, particularly in the UK press, turned their noses at them and they started to be referred to as band rehashes, Mary chain, you know, BRMC an allusion to their sonic similarity to the Jesus and Mary chain. And but what these idiots and tone deaf critics didn't realize is that there was so much more to BRMC than a Mary chain influence. They were darker, heavier and trippier than the Mary chain ever were. And they incorporated elements of folk, country, gospel, blues, and soul into their sonic stew. And that was, of course, best expressed in their almost all-acoustic 2005 masterpiece, Howl. They took the songwriting growth they showed on Howl, and then they went back to the studio and applied it to their earlier dark, heavy, trippy sound and 
voila, they release in 2007, Baby 81, where they out Oasis Oasis with tough rock and roll swagger and arena sized riffs and hooks. They out Mary Chain to Jesus and Mary Chain with fuzzed out guitar pyrotechnics. And they out Jonestown, the Brian Jonestown massacre with swirling psychedelic majesty. In my opinion, there are only three great all-time albums in 2007. Lucinda Williams West, LCD Sound System, Sound of Silver, and this one, BRMC's Baby 81. This film captures them on tour for that album, and it captures them in all their debauched glory. You know, um, One highlight is during the Dublin show when they, uh, they're playing the song Mercy and they slow it down. And they segue it into this rollicking acoustic version of the old Ewan McCall Irish folk song, Dirty Old Town. And the inciting a really, really touching audience sing-along as they go along to it is completely unexpected. Not what you expect from them. But if you're familiar with their influences, it should, it should, it should be expected. Because the, this band, they had their one foot in that... That scuzz rock, but they had one foot in just majestic American roots music. So yeah, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, listen to that live show or watch that live film. Black, yeah, I, I actually agree with you. I think Baby 81 uh, is a really great record that is one of these uh, unfairly dustbin records because, you know, I said that was, that band was fantastic. And, yeah. Uh, I can just imagine that, you know, the energy could blast you from the dashboard and could blast you from the speakers and could blast you in the bedroom. I can just imagine being in the fifth row of a BRMC show. And that must have just, you know, that that was, uh, they were really powerful uh, and subtly original band. I think they're one of the more underrated bands of this uh, century, uh, for sure. And, and I think Baby 81 is probably their best record. Personally. Yeah. For me, for, for me, it's between that and Howl. And and I really like their second one. Um, uh, the, the one after their self-titled album. And I mean, it, they, they lost a bit of critical momentum with that one, but it's unfair because, because take them on, on your own is a great, great record as well. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And so, so again, I, I think a lot of these, uh, these albums that, uh, or these, Films that uh, Arturo is is mentioning are really just a uh, moment in time, uh, just kind of shows you, uh, you know, the majesty uh, of, of, of these bands. And, and BRMC de- definitely deserves it. Uh, they're one of those parallel universe uh, bands still, yep. that, you know, that even, even then I, I never quite understood because they did have their moment on MTV when they first came out. Yeah. And they, they did get a push, you know, right at the end of the 120 minutes era, you know, like sort of 2000, you know, the, the early 2000s. But and then they kind of faded, but which was too bad because, again, they were one of they're one of the best bands of the century. So good. Yeah. Good. Pick. And now my final live film concert film recommendation is purely YouTube <laughs> again. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's fairly recent. It was from four years ago. And it is by one of my personal heroes uh, in contemporary rock music, none other than Ty Siegel. Boy, that was predictable. Yep. From the La Route du Rock Festival in Saint-Melo, France, August 20th, 2017. This is a festival show. 
and it's professional quality. You can find this professionally shot video on YouTube. Just type Ty Siegel La Route du Rock Festival or Ty Siegel Live 2017. You'll find it. Like with Black Rebel Motorcycle Club earlier, this is an opportunity for me to give a shout out to and praise the man that I call rock and roll Jesus. Why? Because he's the savior of rock. That's why. Now, starting out, <laughs> exactly. Starting out as a garage rock wonderkind in the late noughties, his career has progressed into this ever-evolving tapestry where punk, metal, glam rock, grunge, and psychedelia weave in and out in a manner that assimilates his myriad of influences and in many ways transcends them all. Um, on top of that, he's a phenomenal songwriter with an ear for infectious melody and engaging riffs. And he's an underrated lyricist as well. Uh, his recent records, 2018's Freedom Goblin and 2019's First Taste, have started to delve into progressive rock, Captain Beefheart style avant-garde blues rock and jazz, particularly with some off-kilter Charles Mingus-esque horn arrangements. This live recording, this live film, is taken from the tour supporting his 2017 self-titled album, which was produced by one of Chris's and one of my favorite rock album producers, Steve Albini. That self-titled 2017 uh, Ty Siegel album is, as you would expect, by something produced by Albini, bone dry, free of extra adornments, loud, hard, heavy, in your face, and stylistically, musically, is akin to something like a a really raw, grungy, loud, grateful dead with sprawling guitar jams and all. Yes, folks, the words grunge and grateful dead are not bad words in this podcast. And uh, no, 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 they certainly are not. Yeah, this this live recording, this live film is basically a reproduction of that album. About 80% of the show is tracks from that album. And needless to say, it rocks fucking balls. No, just take everything I said about Ty Siegel, put that in a live setting, and you get what Siegel and the Freedom Band, his band's name, are all about. So, yes, Ty Siegel. What do you think, Chris? Siegel, uh, he's one of those guys that just makes it all seem effortless. Yeah. Uh, doesn't he? I mean, he's just yeah. like one of these guys that just goes out there and uh, you almost get a sense he just doesn't rehearse and he's just going up there and just kind of showing off. Uh, and he's, he, he's just got it. Yeah, yeah, yes. He yeah, definitely has a talented guy, but he's also kind of a walking iconoclast too. He's just uh he's an interesting cat because what is he he's got like seems like he comes out with like three albums a year under like two or three different names or band names and he's got like side projects that have side projects and, and all of this. And so he's just kind of uh it's almost like a monster movie, you know, it's like he comes alive, you know, he 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 creeps out of the walls and just explodes and just he seeps uh, into the seats and he's just uh, you know he's just uh, you know, he's kind of a force of nature and so any chronicle of that is definitely worth checking out. In the last couple of episodes, Chris and I tried to cure the COVID blues for those jonesing for live music with our live album and concert film recommendations. For our next episode. We'll get a little serious and talk about the coronavirus's effect on live music. 
Is this the worst thing to happen to indie rock and the rock touring set in general? What will rock look like once this ends? What will it sound like? Will there be any venues left? Even if there are, will anyone even go to shows? Our good friend and professional science journalist and avid music geek himself, Mike Eisenstein, will join us as we discuss how the live music industry will try to pick up the pieces after this terrible pandemic. Email us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at at curmudgeonpod. All right, so I'm, I'm done with my five, my five newish concert films. But Chris is going to take, you're going to take us to the classics. I am. And so, yeah, we, we I, I was, I was assigned with the hits and uh, they're not quite all the hits that you would expect. Uh, some of these are a little quirky, but, uh, you know, basically I always say that, you know, our criteria for these lists are not objective bests. They're more uh, driven by fascination, driven by uh, the, the effect that they mesmerize us or they engage our minds. And, and so it's always about public service, but it's also about, you know, the stuff that just sort of draws our odd brains uh, to them. And that, that's really what this is uh, for this. And so a lot of these uh, you'll probably be familiar with, and they're as much about story as they are about the uh, the concerts uh, that they cover. So uh, to get started, we'll go to um, perhaps the most important concert film ever made in the sense that it introduced so much. I mean, the concert itself introduced so much iconic music to America yeah. uh, in a strange context. Now, this is Monterey Pop, uh, which I'm sure all of you at least listening to this podcast know of the show. But uh, let me give you some background on this. So the movie is a documentary, obviously, that uh, uh, captures the performances of the show and captures the vibe. Uh, it's made by D.A. Pennebaker, who's pretty much the godfather of the rock and roll documentary slash concert film. Uh, he's done a ton of them. He's known for his Bob Dylan movie, Don't Look Back. And probably uh, second on this list would be uh, Ziggy Stardust and the Spider from Mars, Spiders from Mars from 73. But then there's Monterey Pop. Now, Monterey Pop is uh, June 16th to 18th, uh, 1967 uh, in uh, San Francisco. Uh, it was organized by John Phillips of the Mamas and Papas and uh, Lou Adler, uh, the producer, and a couple of other folks. And it really was meant to uh, be a, a love poem to the summer of love and really kind of capture the vibe and capture the scene in uh, San Francisco uh, at the time. But what it turned out to be is that Phillips and... Adler saw an opportunity to say, well, here's our chance to not only celebrate San Francisco, but it's also to turn you on to a lot of really great new music that we love and we think that you ought to love too. And so if, it, if I may interrupt, it's basically like us, if we had a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, essentially, I mean, that's, that's essentially what it was. It was, it was a vanity project. Now, uh, the, the thing that people don't realize is that the, a lot of times is 
obviously the most famous stuff in it is, is Hendrix and uh, the who and the dead, uh, you know, their, their performances. Uh, and- hold on, hold on. If I may interject, the dead actually refused to have their performance in the film. Right. No. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the, you know, the film, the original film uh, is really tight and there's only 14 songs in it. And uh, you know, obviously my generation by the who and uh, wild thing by Hendrix are probably the two most uh, famous uh, performances uh, from it. But it's, so it's an interesting watch in the sense that uh, there's a, a few things to take away from it. One, Penna Baker t- uh, plays it straight. It's not one of these artsy fartsy films of the sixties and seventies with all the split screening and uh, this, the, uh, the color on color and uh, a fascination with the audience. Uh, Pennebaker lets his camera linger on the performers and he kind of lets these icons and performances speak for themselves because they're so extraordinary and so original. Uh, and nobody had ever seen anything like this before. You got to remember this is June 67. And this is basically the first big show for the who and Hendrix and Robbie Shankar uh, actually uh, gets his introduction uh to a wider audience through Monterey pop. And so Pennebaker is pretty much putting you in the, uh, in the gaze of the audience here. And so a couple of, I think the main things that you should look for in this film and why I want to turn you on to them. Uh, first it's the who footage. And uh, so the performance of my generation begins with Pete Townsend saying, this is where it all ends which is not really true that this is where it all begins possibly for, well, definitely for the who, but uh, possibly for all rock and roll because over the next uh, three and a half minutes, it's the performance of the song, which is not really a great performance of the song. Then it's basically Keith moon going nuts uh, and doing his thing and Pennebaker actually doing close-ups enough so we can see Keith moon. And so, uh, you can almost hear him thinking through the camera, what the fuck is this guy doing? Uh, and that's basically the emotion that we, we have when we're looking at it. And then famously Townsend is destroying his, his guitar and Moon is basically kicking his guitars all over the place. And so stuff is basically on fire. It's smoking all of this. And there's this beautiful little 20 second sequence where we get a close up of two guys in the front of the row of the audience with these, you know, agape, like horrified looks. <laughs> and then the final shot of this is uh, Moon's uh, bass drum uh, kind of on its side with the band logo just sideways. And then it just gets engulfed by smoke. <laughs> and so this is perfect. So this is your introduction to the who, uh, the other reason to uh, cherish this film is the uh, performance footage from the mamas and the papas. Reason being is, is that while the mamas and the papas and John Phillips have this legendary place in American rock and roll as a band, they played less than three dozen shows. Yeah. And this they weren't, made, they weren't, they weren't really a touring band at all. No, they, they were a studio band. And by the time they got up and running, they only had basically one tour and they fell apart during that tour. And by the end of it, they all hated each other and were headed for divorces and drug addiction and all of that. And so literally the only good concert footage of the mamas and papas 
are this Monterey pop set, this 25 minute Monterey pop set. And, you know, uh, California dreaming makes the film and they were incredible. I mean, the band that they had behind them, the voices, uh, Cass Elliot as a performer, uh, there's just the arrangements and just the studio stuff from them is just beautiful and it shimmers. No, they rock the fuck out at Monterey pop and it's just uh, really iconic. And again, Penna Baker just plays it straight and just uh, doesn't uh, basically films it without commentary. And so it's, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, document to that. So, well, the summer of love, but it's an, an injection of British, uh, born craziness into the summer of love. And so in that sense, it's a, it's a wonderful document and essential uh, listening and viewing. So what do you have to yeah. say about that? Yeah. Well, I mean, another thing about Monterey, two things, my first uh, uh, point about Monterey pop, it's also a chance to watch the beginning of the end of the birds in their original yes. lineup. Yeah, this, David, uh, what David Crosby on stage with canned heat or something or what? Yeah, this this was a time in the Birds when David Crosby was trying to become the leader of the band and be the front man. Uh, Gene Clark had left the band uh, about a year and a half earlier. Oh, I misspoke. Buffalo Springfield. Go yeah, ahead. Buffalo Springfield. Right, right, right. But uh, with the Birds, this was the show where Crosby pissed off all the other members of the band and kind of upset some people in the audience with his long ranting monologues about the JFK assassination and how, uh, how, how the country's being taken away from us and blah, 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 yada, yada. And uh, McGuinn Hillman and Michael Clark were just pissed off at him at this point. And after this show is kind of like they, well, they, what Crosby did on stage in Monterey pop was what got the wheels in motion to get him fired. Yes. <laughs> from the and 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 not, and not only that, but they were pissed off that he went on stage and jammed out with Buffalo Springfield too. Exactly. Yeah, that, because, that, that was the last, that was the real last straw because I guess yeah. McGuinn couldn't stand Steve Stills. Yeah, and and you know, well, I I I know I have a story about that. Um, Neil Young didn't go to Monterey Pop because he was a member of, as we know, of Buffalo Springfield. So that's right. why I mean, he, he was in the middle of breaking up with them at the time too. So yeah, true. But um, yeah, McGuinn hated uh, um, uh, Stills. And the, the the epic Johnny Rogan book about the birds, <laughs> uh, he describes – it's like a 1,000-page biography, believe it or not. Um, like I know more about the birds than I ever care to now. <laughs> yeah, God bless Johnny Rogan. <laughs> uh, shout out to him, one of my favorite rock writers of all time. Um, th there's a scene in which uh, McGuinn – kind of walks into the room as like um, uh, uh, Stephen Stills and David uh, and he had Stills and Crosby. Crosby was still with the birds and Stills. I think this is a little bit before Monterey and Stills and uh, Stills was teaching Crosby some blues guitar licks. Right. And uh, McGuinn walked in and then Stills and Crosby looked at McGuinn. Hey, Roger, you know, can, can you do this? And like he was doing some, some really, you know, slinky blues lick. And McGuinn goes, no, no, I'm not familiar with it. And then uh, Stills turns to Crosby, see, I told you, as if rubbing it in that McGuinn couldn't really play guitar very well, <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is some arrogant shit, considering that McGuinn actually was quite a good guitar player. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and I mean, yeah, Stills is a great guitar player, but. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, just... Stills has a reputation as being perhaps the most unlikable guy of that entire era. 
I mean, yeah. all, all three of his bandmates can't stand him. I mean, you know, Young and him have this sort of on again, off again thing, but basically uh, everybody hates Stills, but Stills makes them all their money uh, yeah. <laughs> because of his brilliance. So, well, what I, well, thing is about it, I hit quote unquote brilliance because if you think about it, you know, Stills, even dating back to Buffalo Springfield, he's always had his rivalry with Neil Young. And to me, it's like the most uneven rivalry in rock history. Well, yeah. Neil Young towers above him. And I think Stills right. knows that. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing about it is, you know, Young has that those eccentricities and, and, uh, and genius. Here's the thing. Stills is a master and Young yeah. is a genius. Right. Big There's difference. difference. There's a difference. I mean, Stills, sure. Better guitar player. Uh, not, not, not more innovative, not more captivating, uh, not, I would pay money to see young 19 and a half times out of 20 over stills. Yeah. So, okay. And, and of course, stills is nowhere near the songwriter Neil Young. Is. Oh, of course not. Of course not. Although he, he does like, you know, wooden ships is a pretty damn good song, but yeah, yeah sure. But anyway, uh, so that was a, 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 a on, uh, odd little, uh, uh, tangent. But yep. it all comes from Monterey Pop, and uh, and so the summer of love being invaded by um, by uh, the Brits, and uh, and of course, like I said, you know, it's the Mamas and the Papas, and then it's very funny. Uh, one last thought: very funny that you get that San Francisco Scott uh, McKenzie, yes, uh, mixed in with. Uh, Hendrix doing wild thing while basically summoning the demons out of his guitar. Uh, and so and lighting it on fire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the juxtaposition of it is, is, is pretty amusing and a great, uh, again, one of the essential documents of the evolution of American rock and roll. Okay. Right, great. Next. So next, uh, uh, now we're going to uh, talk about, uh, I think, is the most mesmerizing and interesting of these films. And I may actually record uh, an old, a little mini episode about this because there's so much to say about it. Uh, let the good times roll. Mm, okay. Now uh, this is one of those films that's sort of shamefully been uh, left behind. And uh, when we talk about all time, great live, con- you know, live concert films, uh, which is bizarre to me because it's, it's wonderful. And not only that, but it's also, uh, it's also puzzling. And it also is an unintentional commentary on the racial history of the development of American pop culture since the fifties. So to describe this basically uh, in its essence, it's a chronicle of a uh, tour called the rock and roll revival that took place in, I think, 1972. Uh, and it's uh, a combination of two shows, one on Long Island, one from Detroit, but this is a, uh, basically the very beginning of the nostalgia, uh, uh, old time rock and roll oldies, uh, uh concert review, uh, shows. And so this is Chuck Berry, Chubby Checker, Bill Haley in the comments, uh, comments, uh, Fats Domino, the Shirelles, the Coasters, uh, Bo Diddley, uh, all of these, uh, all of these artists, uh, and the concert footage itself is just amazing, uh, especially Bo Diddley and Little Richard. Uh, but ultimately, what it comes down to, this is a film about white nostalgia for how black music changed American culture, uh, and 
these performers might as well be lions, monkeys, and penguins at the county zoo, uh, because essentially what it is is it's 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 black culture and black rock and roll uh, for the amusement of white teenagers, and it's it's striking because the beginning of the film, the opening sequence, is a, a five minute array of black and white footage of what it meant to be white teens in the fifties. Uh, with, you know, the classic footage, it's Alan Freed, uh, the, the DJ from Cleveland. And there's that famous footage of the, uh, the guy taking the, uh, the, the album off the phonograph and saying rock and roll has got to go and, you know, and shattering it over. And then, then the end of that section, it's pretty amazing. It's this preacher talking all about the evils of rock and roll. And then it goes into, uh, Chuck Berry, in one of his, you know, sort of hokey countryish outfits from the seventies, blasting through no particular place to go and, uh, hail, hail rock and roll. And so it's a striking, uh, juxtaposition, uh, there. And so you get this. And so there's times throughout the film, they use a lot of split screen and it's really striking that you're seeing uh, at one point, as a, for instance, there's a uh, chubby checker performance of the twist and he's out there and he's a lot of these guys are now fat and on drugs. And, you know, they have the, uh, the beginner Afros from the early seventies and they don't look anything like they did as kids. Especially but, little, little Richard this time was like wrecked on angel dust and cocaine. Yeah. And yeah, he, he, this is little Richard at his absolute gayest for sure. Um, but so this this chubby checker thing is it goes back and forth between chubby's performance in the 70s and a performance of the twist from the uh, from the 50s you know like television footage and it kind of makes a point that it's screaming white teenagers in the audience back in 1954 and then screaming white teenagers in the audience in 1973 so this is uh you know black music on display for white teenagers. And it's like white teenage, it defines the culture for white teenagers. So, but again, the concert footage in this film is extraordinary. Uh, Little Richard in his powder blue outfit with his cape and the big conk and, you know, running through the audience and blasting through Lucille. Uh, Bo Diddley, absolutely fucking unbelievable uh, in this film. Uh, So much charisma and- Phenomenal live performer. Bo Diddley. This is not a guy who is encased in wax uh, in this film. He's not like recreating uh, what he did back then. Like Bill Haley in the comments do rock around the clock, but they basically just, you know, as if they were in a time machine. Whereas Bo Diddley's just bashing the fuck out and just doing Bo Diddley's thing. I mean, he's just extraordinary. And uh, so, so you get a lot of that. It's this, it's this white nostalgia for black music, but the second half of the film, it really, the, the stars of the film end up being Bo Diddley, Little Richard, and Chuck Berry. And they talk a lot about how difficult it was for them. You know, Bo Diddley talks about how they taught themselves how to cook on the road because otherwise they were playing all these like white clubs and they'd have to like go in through the back through their own security. And if they wanted any food, they couldn't be seen. And so they'd have to like sneak through the kitchen. And so they all taught themselves how to cook. Uh, and there's, an extraordinary moment in the film. I, I, well, the, the diddly sequence is just jaw dropping altogether, not just the concert footage, but in the beginning, they show footage of him walking through a grocery store and he's like the most charismatic guy alive and uh, saying hello to his young fans. And so he walks away from one young fan and 
this girl, and she looks at the camera and says, if it wasn't for him, we'd all still be listening to Beethoven. Uh, and, <laughs> then goes, and, awesome. then goes, yeah, and then it goes to the arena. And there was an old doo-wop group that was on this tour called the Five Satins. And the uh, directors, they have the camera on one of the guys from the Five Satins. And he's like, man, you know, we're on this bill. We have to follow Bo Diddley. Can you imagine having to follow Bo Diddley? Man, we're fucked. <laughs> yeah, is 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 basically uh, what he's saying, and so, so again, so it's just the streak, and then the end at the very end of the film, it's Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley just jamming out together on guitar, which is just ridiculous. And then the two of them like basically doing the funky, the they're facing each other, and they decide to both start doing the funky chicken dance while they're, uh, <laughs> you know, with with the, with the, the the swinging legs and everything. So it's uh, it's it's really funny, but. Again, as a testament to uh, white nostalgia for black music and the the mistreatment of these folks. And you're at the beginning of when rock and roll was starting to uh, enter into its nostalgia phase. And for what it's worth, this is the tour that basically made all these guys millionaires. (laughs) You know, most of them hadn't made any real money up until then because they were all getting so screwed and, and all that. But this is how they all became like rich and famous. So... Let the good times roll. It is definitely on YouTube. Uh, I believe it's on a couple of the streaming services. Uh, go out, run, and watch this film. I think it, it's the second best uh, live film ever made behind uh, one of the other uh, 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 films on my list. So there you go. Well, I would like to say that there actually is a precursor to this rock and roll revival. Uh, it took place in 1969. Um, at a small stadium in Toronto and it was recorded and released as live piece in Toronto, 1969, basically John Lennon and the plastic Ono band. Now let me see. Well, he's not a famous fifties. Oh, I, I, I know what you're talking about here. Yeah. This, is, this is fun. Yeah. Yeah. But basically this was a, um, a Toronto rock promoter named John Brower and another guy named Kenny Walker. These are Canadian concert promoters and they had a, a rock and roll revival festival on the bill was uh chuck berry little richard jerry lee lewis fats domino bo diddley and gene vincent they also booked a few contemporary bands chicago <laughs> <laughs> alice cooper <laughs> Where he, I think this may be the show where he ripped up the the chicken and threw it in the the crowd, and the headliner, The Doors. Okay, Uh, and and, uh, just a day or two before the show, um, a hastily put together plastic Ono band of basically John Lennon and his you know long hair bearded hippie hippie glory. It was him, Eric Clapton. Uh, Klaus Vorman on bass and Alan White on drums and Yoko Ono on shrieking vocals. <laughs> and, and basically they went on, I think just before the door, the doors were the headline headline band, but it's kind of weird how in a show that was supposed to be like retro rock and roll revival, you got, you know, a, 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 an ad hoc band of Clapton and Lennon, the doors, Chicago and Alice Cooper. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, just re- I've read about this show in the past, and just the way it reads, it's like, 
oh man, if I could just like get reincarnated or I can just go back in time, I can die now. And then they reincarnate me in 1969, just so I could be at this show, just to say, oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah. Apparently the band was under rehearsed because it was all put together like just in one day. Um, basically, uh, the, the promoters called John, they called Apple, Apple, uh, Apple records or the Apple company. And they actually got Lennon on the phone and Lennon, okay, yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. You know, and at this point, you know, they, 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 they had to put it all together and they had to contact actually, oh, the way I, the way it is that they had to get through, get through Clapton first and then Clapton to contact John and Yoko who were still sleeping. <laughs> So, hey, wake up. I got a phone call from Toronto. These guys are, are putting together a show. Do you want to go and play? <laughs> you know? And he's like, oh, yeah, fuck it. You know, At that point, Lennon couldn't go to the U.S. because he had visa problems because of a previous drug bust that he had the previous year. Yeah. Uh, so he could only go to Canada. So, um, yeah. So everything was hastily put together. They only had two rehearsals. One was on board the airplane. Yeah. <laughs> and then they arrived. They got in there. They didn't know what to play, so they just played. Guess what? A bunch of 1950s rock and roll songs. <laughs> yeah, and and then they and then they did. Uh, I think they did um, "Cold Turkey," and uh, which was also a single that Lennon played. It did "Give Peace a Chance," and they ended it with like one of those you know screaming, shrieking Yoko Ono songs. Um, this one, uh, "Don't Worry Kyoko," I think is the name yeah. of the song. Tell, tell us how you really feel, by the way. No, I like Yoko as a person. I think she's a great a woman. I, I think I think she saved John Lennon's life. I think. Oh really. yeah, but 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 as a, as a musician, she's kind of intolerable. But she's pretty, uh, she's pretty much unlistenable. But anyway, yeah. the, the show ended with um, Lennon just doing guitar feedback and Yoko shrieking, and then the Doors came on stage, and that that ended the show. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that's one of the crazier uh, shows of all time, but. Yeah, but this uh, this uh, particular uh, show, and and again, at that point, like you you said, revivalism was starting to bubble, but it really wasn't until that early seventies yeah, yeah. Uh, streak that this sort of became monetized. And again, this is an example of it, but it's history repeats itself. You know, black, you know, black people uh, come out and they they uh, cause the paradigm shift. Uh, white kids catch on. And uh, it really takes off from there. So, again, it's a strange film in the sense that the first half is all about, hey, remember how these guys shaped the culture and, and defined all the white teeny bopper stuff and all the, uh, you know, all the uh, there's wonderful footage, news footage of all these old uh, 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 public officials talking about the evils and the dangers of rock and roll and how it's poisoning society and all this stuff. But then the second half is basically uh, talking about the hardships of Little Richard and. Uh, Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry. One one last excerpt, and then we'll move on. There's a wonderful uh, scene in uh, Let the Good Times Roll where Little Richard and his manager are in the backseat of uh, Little Richard's limo. And, you know, Little Richard obviously is as high as a kite, and he's in that ridiculous cape and all that. But the manager it starts to lament about how uh, Tutti Frutti comes out, and this is supposed to be Little Richard's moment. But then by the end of the year, Pat Boone has – uh, gotten it onto radio and probably makes about 50, 50 times more money than little Richard did from it. But little Richard is like, well, you know, I, he basically says, I have no problem with Pat Boone, you know, and it's like, you know, he, he did a good job. You know, it's very hard to come out with that. Wop, bop, loo, bop, wop, bam, boom. It doesn't necessarily roll off the tongue. 
and 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 he and he knocked it. He did he did a good job on that. And so this so this idea of, of Little Richard defending the white guy that ripped him off um, is is kind of an interesting uh, touch. It's like you know yeah like I said I, I I respect it I respect any white man that can do me right. Uh, so and so it was just classic Little Richard moment. So uh, again I think it's the second best uh, live film of all time. So. Uh, go out and check it out. So, all right, Chris, next. Moving on. So, uh, this is the um, the newest entry on my list, but it might as well be an oldie. Uh, this is Michael Jackson's "This Is It" uh, from uh, 2009. And as you'll remember, uh, you know, this came out basically. It was released the fall after Michael died. And you will remember, you know, Michael Jackson is uh, is a genius. He's one of my personal musical heroes. Uh, a future uh, topic for a curmudgeon rock report episode. He is most definitely not a genius. He was great, but he was not a genius. He, Prince he, he, was a genius. No, Michael Jackson was a genius. Both of those guys were geniuses. We're going to have this argument. We're going to have a Prince versus Michael Jackson uh, episode. I am the, Ma- the oh, Michael Jackson series. defender. Series. Huh? It's going to be a whole series. It's going to be a whole series. And uh, I will defend Michael Jackson to the end of the earth. This is the movie and this is the footage more than anything else that proves how much of a, of a genius Michael Jackson is. So let's uh, give some context to this film. So Michael is broke and very broke. I mean, he obviously he was a compulsive spender. He's coming off being on trial for being a kitty raper and he was acquitted and uh, he needs money. And i.e., he paid off the plaintiff that, yes. that, that he wasn't acquitted. He, he paid him off. Basically. Now, basically, yeah, every every witness, you know, ha, had been paid by Michael Jackson. And so nobody had any credibility. So you couldn't convict him. And so what happens is uh, he needs he needs money. And originally so the promoters, these concert promoters, uh, AEG from uh, Britain, they talk him into what was originally going to be a 10-show residency at the O2 Arena in London. Uh, well, there was such demand for it that they convinced Michael and his people to expand it to a 50-show residency that was supposed to be held between July of 2009 and uh, March 2010. It was going to start in, I think, like late July. Now, he's in the middle of doing final rehearsals. And you got to remember at this point, he's badly hooked on morphine and anesthesia drugs. Uh, and he's his back is basically broken. I mean, his back is so fucked up from all the years of, of dancing and touring and all of this that it's basically his whole back is a herniated disc, which is why he's on all these drugs to begin with. So that's one thing to keep in mind. Now, obviously, he dies before he gets to do uh, this residency. And so you would think, given how sick he was and given all that condition, there's like no way in hell that you would think that Michael was going to get through that residency in one piece. But then there's this rehearsal footage that they were planning on maybe doing something with, but probably weren't going to release it. So uh, they make a deal with Michael's estate. And, you know, the, the concert promoter, they're going to put this out as a documentary. And that's what this is. And it's all this rehearsal footage. And it is astonishing. This is a 50-year-old junkie with a broken back doing 
even faster versions of wannabe starting something and uh, jam and some of these other songs with all of this extraordinarily uh, uh, frenetic dancing and all of these numbers and, and, and all of this. And there's this extraordinary moment where he's doing wannabe starting something again, uh, way faster than it even is on the, the album with him doing all of this crazy dancing. And then they stop it. It stops at one point and Michael's like, well, I'm not really feeling that part or not really feeling that enough. And it needs to be funkier. And so like Michael is in full command of what he wants uh, and is it's a craftsman and a genius uh, at work. And you really it shows that what what it shows is the film is that a live show is a two sided coin. There's the performance, but then there's the rehearsal and the preparations. And so you see all of this and, you know, the scale and there's going to be all the CGI and green screen shit and all the dancers and all of this. But you get to see Michael building these performances, talking about the music. Uh, my favorite sequence in this film is there's an extended uh, section about the preparations for The Way You Make Me Feel, a uh, song from the 1987 album, Bad. Uh, and so... Uh, it's him working with the music director and, you know, the music director, uh, you know, it's basically Michael talking about, uh, you know, tempos and keys and, and all this other stuff and what he wants as far as the vocal arrangements. And the music director looks at Michael at one point and says, man, you know, you, you're a guy who really needs to be at your sound checks because you're the only person alive who's going to hear what you want to hear. <laughs> and how you want it. I can't sit here on the, as the music director and give you what you want. You, you have to tell me it because you're so far, you know, uh, more advanced than the rest of us. And he goes out and proves it. So there, there's these uh, vocal uh, rehearsals, there's the dance rehearsals, and it's all of this. And it's, again, this is a 50-year-old guy that's a week, basically two days away from dying, who can barely walk without being high. And he's doing and he's working at this level with that kind of work ethic and that kind of insight and that kind of talent uh, on display. And so again, it's a jaw dropping document to just how good uh, Michael was and how locked in. And even when he was at his worst, he could still figure out a way to get to his best. And it's a damn shame that uh, at least he never got to do these shows live in London because uh, they would have been spectacular. I still don't think, me personally, given the conditions he was in and what we've read since then, that he would have been able to get through the entire thing uh, without breaking down. But uh, this is it. Uh, one of the great documents, especially if there's there's no genre about movies about rehearsal. It's a one film genre, and this is the film. And so if you really want to get a sense of what rehearsal adds to uh, to the rock and roll canon, this is the movie. So that's that. I only, I only have one question. Um, does this movie show any of these, any of his little boy companions? Uh, no, it does not. Oh, uh, okay. But it does show, uh, uh, interestingly, uh, do you know who Orienti is? Orienti? No. Yeah, Orienti. She's a really good looking uh, guitarist from Australia who's just a shredder, just brilliant. She's one of these, she's kind of like a female Australian Steve Vai. Uh, okay. Safriani type. 
uh, she was going to work on this tour. And so there's also this footage of Michael and her uh, working on like beat it and some of that other stuff with, with her just absolutely doing this ridiculous stuff. And again, keep in mind he, the versions of these songs, like they're all fast tempos anyway, now up to tempo to like, it's kind of like putting a 40, like a, a, a 45 on 90 or, you know, or whatever it is. It's like, want to be starting something, you know, and it just, and it, and it makes sense. And it, so I mean, the way that this guy is challenging himself when he's basically, you know, got, you know, he's five and three quarters feet in the grave. Yeah. It's kind of remarkable. So. All right. I'll download it. I'll definitely download it. Okay. So what? No, no, no other commentary about Michael Jackson. No, I, I, I just want to know the, the, the tabloid dirt, man. It's Michael Jackson, right? Isn't that, isn't that what anyone cares about anyway? <laughs> uh, well, no, you, 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 you can say that, but uh, M- Michael is one of the great singular geniuses in the history of popular music. And uh, tune in in about six weeks and we'll, and I will do my best to prove it to, uh, to this other curmudgeon motherfucker on the other end of the line. So. All right. On that note, let us uh, let us proceed uh, down my list of films. Uh, next up, it uh, when you, one of my favorites. Yeah, uh, stop making sense. And uh, this is uh, Talking Heads. Obviously, uh, this is about a, when we think of iconic uh, concert films. This is basically the indie movie house concert film to beat them all. And this is one of those everything is cool and clever and hip and cute. But damn, what a great band and damn, what a great director. And it's a total child of the early 80s. I mean, right down to the uh, to the weird handwritten sans serif font, you know, rock poster thing that goes on in the credit credits and everything else. But, you know, here's a quote from uh, from Demi where he says, if you're doing a music film, you've got to be singing about something or you have to be singing in a vocabulary that has tremendous appeal or else people are not going to want to sit there for 80 or 90 minutes hearing this stuff. And between him and Byrne, they really, really uh, do this uh, extraordinarily well. And so essentially it's a concept film. It's, it's a, it was recorded, it's four shows in Los Angeles and it was like over the span of four nights at a, at a theater in Hollywood. Uh, but it's cut so that the concept is, it starts and there's so many iconic uh, shots in this that a lot of people will know, even if they haven't seen the film, they'll know the iconic moments. It starts with a close up of Burns foot. He took, well, it's a boom box and a, a close up of Burns foot with white converses. He turns on the, uh, the boom box and it has these, you know, preset uh, uh, beats the camera scrolls up. He's wearing this like ridiculously natty seersucker suit. And, you know, he's it, so it's just him and an acoustic guitar and this beatbox with this really great dark version of Psycho Killer. And so this is the way the film starts. And so the concept of this, it starts with just burn and a boombox and acoustic guitar. You look behind him and the stage is basically just... Uh, as if they haven't even built the set yet. And as the film goes on, you know, next comes Tina Weymouth, the bassist, and they do Heaven. You know, next comes uh, Chris Franz, and they do uh, one of the songs from uh, More More Songs About Building and Food. Uh, Then comes Jerry Harrison and 
Then comes the backup singers. And in the meantime, they're, they're building up the back of the set. You know, they're, they're putting everything in. Um, then, come, like I said, the backup singers come. Eventually, Bernie Worrell gets there. The, uh, the percussionists come out. The keyboardists come out. The, uh, you know, everybody. And as the film goes up, it just keeps getting more electric. Then come costume changes. And then you get uh, Life During Wartime, where, like, you get everybody jogging in place together for like two and a half minutes. Uh, and then you get to the end of the film. And of course the most iconic thing in it is, uh, is uh, uh, burn in that ridiculously huge white suit, uh, which he said was uh, inspired by Kabuki theater and you know, singing girlfriend is better. And, uh, and then it, it, it ends with a wonderful version of cross-eyed and painless. Uh, but through it all, I mean, the energy just keeps building, uh, the noise keeps building, uh, the busyness of it. And all the while Demi is in control with the, uh, with the camera, you know, shows burn when he needs to, uh, shows, you know, like perfect wide shots, perfect close-ups, all of that. And the thing it never slows down. And so the concept is, is it starts small and it starts slow and it starts mysterious and it just accelerates into the, like the most exciting damn thing you've ever seen. And so, uh, and again, it's a testament to the era. Uh, Talking Heads is one of the quirkiest bands of all time. You know, Burn, for as pretentious as he could be, is one of the singular uh, uh, ma uh, masters of the rock idiom and he just just a unique guy man he just um i mean put him and demi together and one thing you could say about burn is boy he knew how to collaborate with the right people you know brian eno and demi and all of this and so uh this is this again it's it's not just it to me it's a piece of filmmaking that almost transcends the concert film genre and it's really what puts demi on the map and so uh, definitely got to check out this whole film. It's, uh, it's a really exciting uh, document uh, to this. But it, total indie movie house shtick, but man, does it work. Yeah, um, Talking Heads are one of those bands that I wish I could, you know, make me wish I had a time machine, go back in time and see them in their peak. Um, speaking of which, there is something on YouTube, uh, Talking Heads related, that you can find it's a concert film slash documentary, but, but, uh, mostly concert film. Um, and what it is, is them, uh, touring for remain in light, the 1980 album. And it's, it's a show taken from a sports arena in Rome, Italy in December, 1980. <laughs> and it's them with the remain in light band, like the full band, you know, all, all these Afro beat drummers and oh, yeah. the whole, section and everything because that's that that's the peak of like david burns afro beat obsession was that album remain in light fantastic live show it's not as artfully done of course as the stop making sense i mean that that, that that's an art film in itself this is just a concert film straight straight concert film but it's really 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 good yeah. um and it's just a, it's a real just great document of in my opinion one of the 10 greatest american bands of all time Oh yeah, they're they're they're, they're totally there. But because I hadn't seen honestly before we started preparing for this episode, I hadn't seen Stop Making Sense since I was a kid. I mean, I saw it when I was a teenager, but at the time, I didn't really appreciate what they were pulling off. Yeah, and 
uh, just the fact that they could, and again, it's, it's called from four different performances, but that was this, that was the show, which is this evolving, we're, we're building the set and adding the musicians and, and rolling the snowball downhill as we go. And it's amazing that they could pull it off the way that they could. Uh, and so just the idea of it and then just bringing in Demi to capture it, it was just a perfect marriage of, of concept artists and, and, you know, and filmmakers and just real vision. So, yeah, yeah, sure. So, absolutely. Yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. And so All right, Chris, next. So now we save the most completely, utterly fucking obvious for last. Uh, <laughs> uh, Artie, uh, three, three guests as to uh, guesses as to which film I'm going to cover next. Uh, let's see. Kiss. One of, one of the Kiss concert films, right? Uh, no. No? Okay. Is it Shanana? Uh, in, in, in some strange ways, I kind of wish it was. But no. <laughs> okay. Um, the Cranberries. Oh, strike three. Uh, survey says The Last Waltz. Uh which is, uh, you know, it's it's an obvious one, and to me, it's not like. Remember, last episode we decided to skip Live at Fillmore East by the Almonds and uh, Live at Leeds by the Who. It's because those are the ones everybody talks about, and you know, and that's and that's fair. And look, the last waltz is the the, the concert film that everybody talks about. And so, but it, when it comes down to it, you can't really do uh, a broadcast about great concert films without covering the last waltz. Uh, you just can't. Uh, you have to. You have to cover it, and uh, for for good reason. It's uh, one of the great documents uh, to uh, rock and roll, and not only the glory of it, but the excesses of it. And oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and 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 the way it's done, uh, it's it's a documentary, but it's it it's a concert film, but it it tells a story. Now, even if it didn't have documentary footage, it would tell, it would still tell a story. So, just as a, a brief recap, so this is a show. It's recorded at the Winterland Ballroom in um, San Francisco, and uh, it's the last show that the uh that the band the band uh did as a five piece i mean uh, with robbie robertson in other words and so they decided to go out in style they were going to do it in this old ballroom uh and uh they were going to go whole hog they had an orchestra uh, uh, that was conducted by michael Kamen, and what it turned into was okay, so it's going to be a, a concert by the band, but they're going to invite pretty much all of their peers that uh, broke out in the late 60s in, um, in America. Uh, anyway, America and Canada, uh, not so much uh, England. Uh, and so it's going to be the celebration of their era, and not only of the, the band itself, but of their era. And as it goes through, so Scorsese does this as an experiment that actually works where he takes seven or eight of the top cinematographers in Hollywood and he has them stationed at different angles with a, a common 
you know, cinematography layout. All these guys are filming this thing and they're doing it live. And so essentially what they're doing is he's sitting there directing these guys as to what to shoot, how to shoot it and, and all of this. And they don't focus on the audience at all. It's a story about the musicians uh, on on stage. Uh, and so obviously at the beginning of this film, uh, Robertson refers to this as the beginning of the beginning of the end of the beginning, uh, which is kind of a good way of putting it because uh, by this point, everybody's just burned out. Uh, the best review of, of The Last Waltz is uh, from Roger Ebert. Uh, who, when you when you first watch this film, you're completely mesmerized and engrossed, and you you know all this great music and all of these great people and the way that it's filmed. I mean, all of these side angle shots of Rick Danko and uh, Robertson just lost, and you just uh, it's just so hypnotic. But then you get uh, Roger Ebert that points out what should be the obvious if you're just watching it removed from the music and he writes uh, the overall tenor of the documentary suggests survivors at the end of their ropes, they dress in dark cheerless clothes, hide behind beards, hats, and shades, pound out rope performances of old hits. Don't seem to smile at their music or each other. Uh, the overall sense of the film is of good riddance to a bad time. Uh, and uh but he ends up giving it three stars because it's a quote unquote revealing document of the time. And he's right. Uh, you know, it, it, this really is these guys, the extraordinary thing is these guys are all in their like mid thirties at the oldest. They're what 40 by this yeah. time. So now they're you, not, they're not old guys, but pretty much everybody there is uh, hooked on something, cocaine, heroin, alcohol, or whatever. Uh, they've clearly all been partying backstage to the point where some of them can barely function uh, when they come out. Uh, and the first half of the film is just extraordinary because it just shows you how good the, of a band the band was. And it's concert footage interspersed with all of this anecdotal stuff about uh, the shows that they did and their evolution uh, and all of that. The second half of the show uh, or of the movie is actually darkly funny because basically by that point, everybody's wasted. Half of these people are not functional and they're supposed to be doing this run through like, oh, let's do some blues and now let's do some country and now let's do Van Morrison, which is just kind of a, the most random curveball. It's like the band is going to back Van Morrison on Caravan. So that's kind of the strangest one. Oh, let's bring out Paul Butterfield or let's bring out Clapton to do further on up the road. And that's hilarious because you get Robbie Robertson, who at this point is like Hollywood boy. And, you know, he's, he's made some money because he's been scoring Scorsese films and all this stuff. And he's out there trying to jam with all these people and he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. And so it's just, you know, Clapton goes off and does this amazing thing. And then Robertson tries to keep up with him and it's just horrible. But uh, but again, there's just a, you know, the story basically is let's all have a celebration and have a good time at the worst possible moment of our lives. And then it's like, you know, we're having such a great time while all the other footage is a discussion about how much they hate this shit. And uh, the best quote of the film is Robertson at the end 
saying it's a goddamn impossible way of life. Uh, and that just sort of encapsulates this. So, so it's, it's a very, um, paradoxical film. It's a dialectic about the joys of music, but the, uh, the pitfalls of musicianship and, and the career and, um, just, I mean, it's an, it's an undying accomplishment. It's mesmerizing. The music is wonderful, uh, but it clearly is, you know, and at the end uh, of the film, well, first off, Ringo Starr shows up out of nowhere. It's like, where the fuck did he come from? Uh, but they do a version of I Shall Be Released, and uh, Dick Manuel is so far gone at this point on alcohol and whatever else, he can't even sing. And so it's just, just this growl. And so it's a happy moment, but a sad commentary. So that's the last waltz. What do you have? uh, Well, one of my favorite scenes is a testament to like just the 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 insane drug intake that was going on at that time. Neil Young coming on on stage to join the band for a version of Helpless. And you could see cocaine liquid dripping from his nose. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, well, playing a harmonica. <laughs> yeah, but it was even worse. So he's got the can- he's got the cocaine drip going on, but they actually painted out the booger that he, <laughs> that he, basically, he had the rock still in his nostril, and Jesus. so they, they they painted that out because essentially, you know, he had been up for like four days, and he's just coming, he's flying in while he's still on a tour, and like he even talks about it that you know somebody slips cocaine under his nose right before he walks out on stage, and at this point, you know. Dick Manuel is, is gone by this point. Uh, Danko is on at the beginning of his going gone. You know, he, he dies 200 pounds heavier, like badly hooked on heroin, uh, 20 something years later. Uh, Levon Helm is, uh, I think he's hooked on heroin during this point. Um, what well, I think was, he was, I yeah. think he was not, not at this point. Yeah. I think I on yeah it, but it's, it's, it's up and down, but uh, these guys are clearly just hurting. Uh, with the exception of Robertson and, uh, and, you know, R- Robertson positions himself as the star of the film. And because remember him and Scorsese were rooming together at this point. And they're so, and the two of them, they're like these two bachelors rooming together and they're so high on Coke. They're, you know, they're basically they're like stealing each other's Coke to stay high. Uh, and so I, I don't know, but, but yeah, Robertson kind of comes across as wise, but also full of shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a great documentary that came out last year on HBO called Once We're Brothers. Uh, it's about the history of the band, mm-hmm. but uh, it's mainly from Robbie Robertson's perspective. Yeah. That's why it's called Once We're Brothers. The subtitle is Robbie Robertson and the Band. Well, yeah. Uh, but but it is worth watching because Robertson comes off as you know, very loving toward, the, toward his bandmates as he should be. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he is a bit of an ego, was and probably still is a bit of an egomaniac. Yeah, well, well, there was that, but also, I mean, well, the other thing too is that like these guys, like they organically made the arrangements, and you know, Danko and Manuel got occasional uh, songwriting credits. You know, like Manuel basically wrote "The Shape I'm In," uh, and he co-wrote "I Shall Be Released" with with Dylan. But Robertson got like what ninety percent of the publishing, ninety five percent of the publishing, and I remember Le- Levon Helm hated his guts for that. Levon yeah. Helm thought that. Uh, Robertson cheated him out of millions. And uh, there was an interview at one point where he basically accused uh, Robertson of killing Manuel and Danko because they had to keep going on the road because they got cheated out of their money. Uh, So I don't know. 
but again, it's, it's, uh, it's a, it's the last waltz. It's a, it's a document of a really good time in the midst of a really bad time for all those people. Albums from the vault. These are old, timeless classics from the past that we're going to bring up. And these are our album recommendations that we recommend anyone out there who's listening, check it out. Check out some old sounds. And my pick for this week is an album by a band called Pearls Before Swine. The name of the album is One Nation Underground from 1967. Now, Pearls Before Before Swine were essentially a revolving door of musicians that served the songs of singer-songwriter Tom Rapp, R-A-P-P, Rapp, uh, formed in what was then called Ew Galley, Florida, now known as Melbourne, Florida, where my mom currently lives. They passed out crude demos of their weird, folkish, slightly rockish songs to every record label they could send to, both major and minor. The only one they got any response from was from an independent label called ESP Disc, which is, still is, a New York City-based label that, back then, specialized in underground and avant-garde free jazz such as Albert Ayler and Sun Ra. This was recorded literally on the cusp of the Summer of Love in the spring of 67 and released later that October. And Pearls Before, Sw- Pearls Before Swine in particular, and this album in particular, basically mark the birth of what is commonly known as acid folk. At their heart, Lyrically, at least, the songs are mostly anti-war protest songs. You know, this was the height of the Vietnam War. Um, And these were protest songs filled with bizarre, surrealistic, biblical, and apocalyptic imagery, um, as well as, you know, haunting philosophical musings. You know, you have lyrics such as, uh, like, Another Time. There's a great line there. Did you find that the universe doesn't care at all? Did you find that if you don't care, this whole wrong world will fall? You know, stuff like that. <laughs> you know, um, and as far as the dark imagery is concerned, it's uh, it's very much like Dylan, but delivered with the gentleness and the star-crossed hippiness of Donovan. And yes, this also means there are the obligatory, you know, wispy love songs that you can't really avoid and get away from, but they are there, but they're good. And what really sets this album apart from other acid-tinged folk rock of the era is its sound. It's recorded very lo-fi. I mean, and this was was an indie label in the 1960s, after all, right? The music is played in a very basic, rudimentary, almost defiantly garage rock style. You know, lots of simple chord progressions that is clearly supposed to evoke a childlike innocence. 
<laughs> and and they got they got Farfisa organ, auto harp, vibraphones, audio oscillator, although not using the extent silver apples used back then. Um, Serangi and finger cymbals all factor into this weird mix that basically sounds like a group of guys trying to record music with cheap instruments found in a secondhand store and augmenting them with basic guitar, bass, drums, folk rock arrangements, recording everything in three days in as cheap a way as possible in with a four track record, uh, with a four track recording studio, but having it all come out aces due to Tom Rapp's haunting lyrics his weird ass melodies and these really evocative song structures. The album sold over 200,000 copies, which made it ESP discs all time best-selling album. (laughs) Uh, uh, The quote unquote band, this band lasted a few more years until their breakup in 1971, which saw rap go solo. Uh, In the late 1970s, he quit music altogether got a degree in economics from Brandeis University, then got a law degree from the University of Pennsylvania in the mid-1980s, and became a civil rights lawyer. He died of cancer in 2018 in Melbourne, Florida. The end. Yeah, go figure. You know, like the, yeah, it, like the, the guy that's like far out there who ends up becoming like the most normal, uh, you know, accomplished guy in the world. So, you know, you know, all... All hail rock and roll, but it's like uh, it, it is always kind of interesting when you think about how some of these people grow up, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and go on to do like these sort of strange things. It's like it's the guys that don't grow up that are ultimately, I guess, more fascinating. But, you know, right. you never know what the arcs are going to be. So, yeah, definitely got to check that out. Pearls Before Swine. Uh, that's that's a digging in the crate special. Uh, speaking of which, now a lot of, uh, I guess, Folks our age will probably remember a time in about 2000, 2001, where uh, at least in New York, this this album got a big buzz and had a little bit of a cult following. But it basically died down and you don't hear about it much anymore. But I wanted to bring this out because I hadn't heard it in a while. Um, The Langley School's Music Project. Uh, So let me explain what this is. Uh, This is an album, I guess, I think it was released in 2001. Uh, and uh, the name of the album is Innocence and Despair. So what this is, is there was a a German composer named Karl Orff uh, back there in the 60s and 70s, and uh, this idea of, uh, he had a theory that the way to teach kids to enjoy music is to just throw them into the deep end and just have them just... uh, sing stuff and enjoy it. And, but meanwhile, while also keeping it uh, minimal. And so uh, he had this style of instruments. It was basically acoustic guitar, percussion, uh, and drum. Uh, And, and with a little bit of weird stuff mixed in here and there with some slide guitar and, or sleigh bells or stuff like this. But most of this, uh, his stuff was just very minimal with like a little bit of strumming and it, whether it was xylophone or vibraphone or this sort of like spacey echoey type of thing. So now uh, fast in 76, there's a guy up in Western Canada in suburban uh, Vancouver, Langley, uh, British Columbia, a guy named Hans Fanger 
who decides that he wants to do an ORF life like experiment himself. And so what he does is he rounds up 60 kids. You know, they're basically like 10 year old kids. Uh, he rounds them up into a gymnasium uh, up there. And so they're going to do this, this ORF project. And again, it's a little bit of acoustic guitar, the uh, percussions. And so they ha- he has the kids. He's, I believe, going back and forth between piano and the acoustic guitar. But the kids are playing everything else. They're playing the drums. Uh, they're playing uh, this weird-ass xylophone thing and all of that. But they're doing this, but they're singing like uh, AOR hits of the day. And so it's uh, uh, stuff from Wings. Uh, it's uh, the Bay Roller, uh, the Bay City Roller Saturday Night. Uh, and uh, they do Space Oddity by David Bowie and all of this. Now, uh, this probably, if you haven't heard this, this probably sounds ridiculous. But it is an extraordinary album. Uh, with the echo of the gym, with the joy of these kids, uh, like during Saturday night, you can, they're all stomping their feet. And so you have this collective stomp that's almost its own instrument. There's pure joy in singing that S A T U R D A Y, uh, and all that. And the version of space oddity, it like literally does work as prog rock with, with that minimalism and these, this chorus of all these little kids, uh, it like hits you right in the nuts. Uh, another one of the highlights is, uh, this version of Desperado by the Eagles. Uh, please keep listening. Uh, I don't mean to repulse everybody out there, but keep listening, but it's this little girl, and so what it is, it's, it's a piano and this little girl singing solo. And there's this just just this um, soul that comes out of it. It's this, you know, this little gal voice, but you can hear the emotion. Uh, she probably doesn't even know what the hell the song is about. But the way that the feeling that she sings these these words with it's I it's the best version of Desperado I've ever heard. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, damning with faint praise, but still, uh, it's, it's still pretty good. But then you get into, um, uh, there's, uh, some other, uh, really interesting stuff. So you've got Venus and Mars rock show by McCartney, uh, which that's how the album starts. And so there's good vibrations, uh, by the, uh, by the, the beach boys. And it's actually very fun, funny because, in the uh, the middle part, they get these little tiny sort of dramatic voices to, and but hearing a bunch of little kids doing that part is is is, is very fun. And then uh, towards the end of the record, there's a, a song that the Carpenters made famous, but it really started with a uh, Canadian uh, prog rock band called Clay Two, called uh, Calling Occupants of Interplanetary, Interplanetary Craft. And so this is kind of a, 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 a this is a, a sneaky one by Hans Fanger to it's it's almost like subversive to have a bunch of nine year old kids doing actual like weird ass druggy prog rock uh, then but uh, again with the combination of this live the, the acoustics of this gymnasium the xylophones all these little voices and just sort of this mood uh, it again it's um, it's it's a really amazing accomplishment, and uh, you know Fanger 
obviously, I mean, it's just proof that there's a lot of elementary school and junior high school music teachers that actually are uh, geniuses that never quite got their forum. Uh, and so, you know, Fanger and Orf and, and these guys, there's just these like these unsung geniuses that, uh, you know, all hail indie rock uh, uh, labels from the 80s, 90s and 2000s that made some of these people uh, give them their 15 minutes. So it's still out there. It's on all the streaming. It's on it's on YouTube. Uh, the Langley Schools Music Project, uh, Innocence and Despair. Uh, definitely. Uh, I wouldn't say one of my favorite albums, but it's an album that I still revere and whip out every few years. So there you go. Yeah, I heard this album a long time ago when I was rooming or living with you. Uh, when and, and I only heard it once when it first came out. I mean, I wasn't that impressed by it. But then again, you have to realize I'm not really into like choral, hymnal, choir music. This is not my thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe I'll, I'll give I'll give it a shot again. You know that that version of Desperado you mentioned sounds interesting. So I'll check that out. Yeah, and I absolutely. You know, and then I obviously have to check out Pearls Before Swine because that was one. I think I had one listen to that record a long, long time ago. Probably, I mean, hell, I don't remember uh, clearly, but it was probably something you turned me on to <laughs> uh, at, at some point. But it, it, it's like it's like low budget Dylan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, yeah, isn't most knockoff Dylan low budget Dylan? Uh, but but low budget Dylan done well. I mean, imagine that. Uh, but yeah, it's, um, like I said, it's not necessarily choral music, dude. It's, it's, it's a bunch of little kids singing the Bay city rollers. I mean, come on. Uh, but the way it's done is just, um, it's spookily avant-garde versions of pop music, uh, by little kids having the time of their lives. So, and that's, uh, the curmudgeon rock report, uh, worldview, uh, you know, we've gone, we've gone long today. Yes, we, we, we definitely uh, certainly have gone long, but that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. And yeah, so all right. that's why there's always an editing suite. The Curmudgeon Rock Report will keep on rocking if you do. Catch us where you catch all the podcasts. We know you love rock and roll as much as we do. Support us with donations at patreon.com slash curmudgeonrock. Find show notes and more on our Medium site. Join us next time as rock nerds smack you with knowledge. Stay rude, stay crude, stay sophisticated. Thank you for listening.